Monday and welcome to Not Boring. Uh, it's been about a week since we've spoken, so I hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving uh, and that you survived the last week or so in the markets. Speaking of which, before we get to today's essay, let's hear a word from our sponsor. Now, you all probably saw the Omicron variant sent nasty ripples through the stock market last week. Even Bitcoin plunged by like $20,000 on Saturday. But you know what was sleeping cuddly in my portfolio? My paintings. The value of my paintings did not drop as all this went on. According to Citigroup, art has the lowest correlation to developed equities of any major asset class. And contemporary art specifically had a lower loss frequency than the S&P 500 over three-year time horizons from 1995 to 2020. Even though past performance doesn't guarantee future results, history says there's a lower chance of huge losses when you're holding for the long term. So far, I have 11 paintings in the Not Boring portfolio. Luckily, I didn't have to drop $100 million to buy a Picasso. I just used Masterworks. In case you didn't already know, Masterworks is the first and only platform that lets regular people like you and me invest in rare art by Monet, Warhol, and even Banksy. They have already secured a unicorn valuation and securitized 90 paintings with the SEC. I also hear folks at Masterworks are huge fans of the Not Boring podcast and newsletter, so you know they have good taste. Now, if you want to join me on the platform, go to masterworks.io slash notboring to diversify today. Again, the website is masterworks.io slash notboring. And you can see important disclosures at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. Now, let's get to it. I want to have some... The Pareto Frontier. Web3 is a vortex for talent, money, culture, and brain space. I've been trying to figure out why and to explain it in the simplest terms. I think I may have it, my tailwit explanation. Web3 pushes out the Pareto Frontier. Most of the decisions we make can be boiled down to fun and money. Granted, that's a gross oversimplification. I'm using fun as a catch-all for a whole lot of things, like love, meaning, belonging, enjoyment, challenge, and more, and money as some sort of net present value of resources acquired as a result of your decisions. In my loose definition, going to church might count as fun because it gives you meaning, or studying might count as money because it increases your chances of making more money later. Studying might also be fun if you enjoy it and derive pleasure from the sense of challenge and accomplishment. But the point here is to keep things simple. So we'll go with those two variables, fun and money. Let's do some examples using a 1 to 10 scale. Reading a sci-fi book might be a 7 on fun and a 2 on money. Reading a finance textbook might be a 2 on fun and a 6 on money. Working in investment banking might be a 1 on fun and a 9 on money. Working at a startup might be a 6 on fun and a 5 on money. Blowing off work to watch your daughter's soccer game might be an 8 on fun and a negative 1 on money. Going to a rave is a 10 on fun and a zero on money. 
There are more examples in the post, but I think you get the point. Now, we're glossing over nuance on the specifics here, too. A really expensive art museum with a terrible collection might be a three on fun and a negative one on money. An online course that you're taking purely to learn about something that fascinates you might be a nine on fun and a zero on money. A fast-growing startup with an electric culture solving a problem that you want to solve might be an eight on fun and a nine on money. Each example is also subject to each person's preferences and situation. Reading sci-fi might be higher on the fun and money scale for me because on the fun side, I'm a nerd. And on the money side, maybe it sparks an idea that helps me write something great. Some people genuinely enjoy working in investment banking. And each person has his or her own opportunity set. That energetic, important, fast-growing startup might only hire people who are in the top 0.1% of people in their respective professions. Every decision overlaps, intersects, and influences the others. Maybe you choose to work in investment banking, sacrificing fun for money at work because you really wanted to live in a nice place today or because you want to retire early and do only fun things thereafter. And finally, that stone in the shoe of economists. Humans aren't as rational as the textbooks would suggest. People often choose to do things that aren't particularly fun or financially fruitful. Humans kind of human. But assuming that we've baked everything in correctly and accounted for and discounted the future implications of our current decisions, for the sake of this thought exercise, we can say that humans make decisions in such a way that maximizes fun and money. You wouldn't choose a job that's a two on fun and a three on money when a job that's a three on fun and a five on money is available to you. You could, however, choose among options that add up to the same total from different angles. Jobs that are two on fun and six on money, three on fun and five on money, and four on both fun and money might be equally attractive. Those equal choices are Pareto efficient. Pareto efficiency is a situation where no individual or preference criterion can be better off without making at least one individual or preference criterion worse off or without any loss thereof. In our example, you couldn't get a job that's one point more fun without giving up one point of money. The Pareto frontier is a set of all Pareto efficient situations. It's all the trade-offs that you might rationally be willing to make. We're gonna use our Pareto frontier here for a couple of reasons. One, we're talking about optimizing for a combination of money and fun, then the pun just fits. And two, so that you'll excuse me if I deviate a little from the precise definition of Pareto efficiency. I'm just making a point. Lay off me, economists. Anyway, in our case, the Pareto fun tier is a set of options at which you can't have more fun without making less money or can't make more money without having less fun. Given the existing options, it's up to participants to choose among options on the frontier based on their preferences, but economically speaking, they're all fair trade-offs. If you want to make more money, you'll have to give up a little fun. If you want to have a little more fun, you'll need to give up a little money. Which brings us back to why Web3 is so attractive to so many. Why once you go down the rabbit hole, it's practically impossible to come out. Now, there are a lot of reasons, technological, financial, psychological, emotional, and more, that more and more people have been drawn to Web3, but I think the simplest is this. Web3 pushes the Pareto frontier outwards by baking money into fun things and fun into money things. The people who argue that Web3 is just a fad or downright bullshit by saying that the user experience isn't good or that there aren't any, quote, real use cases, aren't 100% wrong. They're just missing the forest for the trees. For early adopters, the user experience and the use cases are good enough. Early adopters might be drawn to particular Web3 projects because they're a more fun way to make money than their job, or because they get to earn money by doing things that they find fun anyway. As Web3 grows, more use cases emerge that are appealing to more people on one or both dimensions. The most straightforward example here is the play-to-earn gaming movement kicked off by Axie Infinity. 
Axie is neither the most fun game in the world nor the highest paying job in the world, but it was able to attract over a million players because it offered more money than the games that they're used to playing and more fun and often money than the other jobs available to them. If players' old games were seven on fun and one on money and their old jobs were two on fun and four on money, Axie's five on fun and six on money pushed the frontier out. Web3 gaming isn't finished here. The space will evolve along those two dimensions, fun and money. New games and improvements from Axie itself will focus on both tokenomic designs that make players more money and game designs that makes the games more fun to play. In the financialization of fun, Mechanism Capital's Eva Wu wrote that she sees two major categories emerging. One, play-first crypto games, where the fun gameplay takes center stage and crypto is used as a competitive edge to engage players further. And earn-first crypto games, where the main allure, gameplay, and fun ultimately come from earning money by participating in crypto game economies. But if you've been reading Not Boring, you know that many of us are playing the great online game, an infinite game playing out across the internet with crypto as the in-game currency. Work, creativity, investing, education, and nearly every aspect of our digital lives are undergoing the same transformation that's happening in video games. The financialization of fun and the financialization of finance. Depending on who you are, what you care about, and what you do, that'll mean different things. Take NFTs. If you're an artist, NFTs are a way to make more money from the thing that you find fun and a new medium with which to have fun. Over the weekend, Murat Pak completed the largest primary sale by a living artist in history when he sold 266,855 pieces for between $400 and $525 each for a total of at least $106 million. Merge is both art and a game. Each time Watt holds two mass NFTs, they merge into one, thanks to a custom design manifold smart contract. Each time you buy, your new mass gets subsumed into your larger one. The name of the game is to get more mass, and theoretically, the longer you wait to sell to a whale with more mass, the more your mass is worth to them. All to say, if you're an investor or collector who's into this sort of thing, this is a much more fun way to try to make money than you're probably used to. The same might be true for investing in any NFT project and community that resonates with you, from punks to apes to art blocks to wanderers to Aku. Last week, I was in Miami for Art Basel, and I got to experience the immersive Aku world in person. As an NFT owner and investor in the project, getting to see the exhibit in person was more fun than my typical, typical equity investment and more financial than any experience I've had in an art gallery. Obviously, people have collected art for centuries. We talked about masterworks at the top of this piece, but Aku made that experience accessible to a wider audience, many of whom were collecting art or buying an NFT for the first time. And all of us will have both financial upside and fun upside as the Aku story continues to evolve across different media, which isn't true for someone who owns a static painting. It pushed out the Pareto frontier for a new group of collectors. The mixture of fun and money helps explain why memes have value in their own right. In an excellent piece in Praise of Ponzi's, my friend Jorpoleg addressed a recent event that, on its face, made absolutely no sense. The People Token's explosion in value after Constitution Dow's loss at auction. He said, the price of people tokens shot up dramatically. It was worth nearly 100 times more than what original contributors paid at its peak. Why would anyone pay to buy a token that no longer had a purpose? There are many explanations why people still has a liquid market, but they all boil down to this. It's a good story. People love a good story, and people believe that the value of the story will only increase over time. We've reached a tipping point where the most fun outcome is often the most likely and even the most financially rewarding. That's new.
having fun and making money aren't supposed to go together. There's a two-part reason. One, all else equal, people would love if the most fun thing that they could do would also make them the most money. It's like wishing for delicious pizza that's as healthy as broccoli. And two, we've hit a point where enough people believe that other people believe that the most fun outcome and the best meme will have the most value, which reflexively makes it come to pass. It's like Bitcoin having value because enough people believe Bitcoin is valuable, but way more fun. You could look at investing in memes as a dumb Ponzi that's bound to lead to disaster or as a pure distillation of the intersection of money and fun. The truth is probably somewhere in the middle. Less controversially, the recent explosion in DAOs has already shown glimpses of a future in which people's passions and financial interests merge. The OG, Friends with Benefits or FWB, is a mix of social club and studio that crosses between online and IRL. Its relatively early adopters have been rewarded by a 10 times appreciation in the price of the FWB token since the summer. Importantly, most didn't do it for the money and aren't selling. They did it because they have fun hanging out with cool people who share their interests. Seed Club is like Y Combinator in DAO form, a community helping develop the next wave of successful communities and sharing in the upside together. Six-month-old Krausehaus recently raised 1,000 ETH, or over $4 million from 1,692 backers, through a mirror crowdfund to kickstart the DAO's effort to buy an NBA team. Open Access DAO launched last month to buy paywall research papers and make them publicly available in an effort to liberate valuable knowledge. And a to-be-announced DAO is picking up where Constitution DAO left off and building a distributed museum curated and known by its members. These are just five of many examples that are popping up, and each seems to be spawning more, whether directly through sub-DAOs or through inspiration via Idea Legos. Now, if you looked at DAOs today as just less efficient, more chaotic versions of LLCs, you'd once again be missing the point. They're powering more fun ways to make money and giving people upside for having fun, curating, creating culture, and funding public goods. That combination is hoovering up a certain type of person who's attracted to novelty, speed, and experimentation. And those people are rapidly iterating their way to projects that will attract a wider and wider audience with new use cases. As more new use cases emerge, the list of trade-offs from earlier in this piece starts to look like a list of false dichotomies. Now, what if learning finance could be a five on fun and a seven on money with rabbit hole? Or if applying that knowledge to a project could be a four on fun and an eight on money with station? Or going to a rave could be a 10 on fun and a, a, 10 on fun and a five on money with FWB? Or going to an art museum could be an eight on fun and a seven on money with museum TBA? And playing a video game could be a nine on fun and a five on money with play to earn or watching basketball could be a seven on fun and a six on money with Krauthaus or investing in a restaurant could be an eight on fun and a five on money with a project that I'm excited about that's TBA or that being that friend who finds all the good music early could be an eight on fun and a five on money with sound.xyz. When people talk about Web3 merging culture and finance or financializing culture, these are some of the many examples they're talking about. Financializing sounds like a dirty word, but put another way, it's giving people a chance to earn money while they do what they find fun. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that everyone is going to quit their jobs and join DAOs and trade NFTs or that everything that people currently do for fun will be replaced by a money-making equivalent. Many people will want the financial stability of a traditional job or the challenge that comes with solving deeply hard problems. There are tons of people in climate, medicine, space, and more to whom, thankfully, the most fun and financially rewarding thing, the Pareto of fun choice, I'm sorry, is solving those very hard problems. We all need to hope they keep doing those things and to make it as financially rewarding as possible to do so 
by supporting the efforts through mechanisms like ClimateDAO and the offshoots it'll inspire. Similarly, most people will continue to pursue hobbies or entertainment just because they're fun for a very long time with no expectation of monetary re reward. Most Web3 consumer experiences can't match their pre-existing counterparts on product funness alone yet, and there won't be universal adoption until they do. Until now, Web3 has attracted people who have been willing to deal with often janky experiences for the chance and enormous financial upside, as well as builders and internet explorers who find it genuinely fun to play at the cutting edge, to jump into noisy discords and telegrams and just try to keep up whether or not it makes them any money. Chat rooms and open source software were popular long before they were profitable for contributors. And Web3 wouldn't have broken out the way it has over the past year if people weren't building through the crypto winter because they loved it. Those people on both sides, the speculators and true believers, are necessary to bring about a new Pareto frontier before it smooths itself out. Obviously, there's a much bigger swath of the population for whom spending hours and hours in noisy discords is the least fun thing they can possibly imagine doing. For Web3 to pull those people in, it will likely need to meet them in the places they're already having fun or making money. We talk a lot about the ownership economy and the passion economy as we should, but for our purposes, it's instructive to dive into the experience economy. In late 2017, a couple of years before in-person experiences became hard to come by, McKinsey published a report called Cashing In on the U.S. Experience Economy that showed that Americans, particularly younger ones, were shifting their spend from things to experiences. While spending on goods only grew 1.6% per year from 2014 to 2016, spending on experience-related services grew 6.3%. People were spending more of their money on fun, membership clubs, sports, parks, theater, events, museums, gambling, restaurants, and travel. And then, all of a sudden, they couldn't. A lot of the early rise of Web3 can be seen as the continuation of the trend towards experiences, thrown online in a hurry. But instead of straight spending on experiences and trading money for fun, they're investing in experiences, increasing money and fun, and pushing the Pareto frontier out. From here, if Web3 is going to get as big as I think it can, it will push out in a few different directions. First, it will need to integrate more seamlessly into the experiences that people already like doing, both online and IRL. What if by going to your favorite restaurant enough times, you got to own a table at that restaurant automatically? What if your club membership was an NFT that you could sell to the next person when you decide to leave instead of giving up your expensive initiation fees? What if sports leagues made it easier for fans to not just own NFTs of highlights a la Top Shot, but parts of the teams themselves just for showing up? Attendance is down as the at-home experience keeps getting better, and this may be a way to entice people back to the stadium. And what if some of our most important and culturally, culturally relevant nonprofits, which have spent so much time, energy, and ironically money fundraising, were owned and governed by DAOs? A treasury backed by real-world assets with a token fueled by narrative upside would be an interesting proposition. Or what if you could gamble on crypto instead of going to a casino? Wait, check. Anyway, the intersection of the ownership economy and experience economy will continue to push the Pareto frontier out. It won't replace jobs for everyone, but a knock-on effect might be that people will be able to take jobs that give up a little money for more fun since they'll be able to earn upside from their hobbies. If this seems far-fetched, fantastical, or even dystopian, consider this. A recent The Daily episode highlighted that Amazon hires and turns through hundreds of thousands of warehouse workers each year. If you don't think it plans to automate those roles ASAP, you don't know Jeff. People will need new ways to earn money and find meaning. And what better way than by doing the things that they enjoy most? Human creativity and culture will be the last thing the robots could replicate. The more people making money from creativity and culture, the more resilient we are. 
On the other end of the spectrum, the people who do like spending their time online, particularly younger people, will learn the skills to create and manage their own ever more niche communities, experiences, and online worlds. More will be empowered to create experiences that are more fun for certain groups of people and share in the financial upside from doing so. If Web 1.0 was read-only and Web 2.0 was read-write, then to reach its full potential, Web 3 will need to become read-write remix. More people armed with Web 3 Legos and coding literacy will create experiences we can't yet imagine for the surprisingly large niches of people who will value them most. I wouldn't be surprised to see Web 3 make the internet more bespoke. More on this Thursday. In either case, it's unlikely that the absurd returns early adopters have generated will persist. That's okay. Speculative returns are great at attracting talent and rewarding the earliest adopters with money while the fun catches up. That talent will create more fun experiences and more people have access to opportunities to earn money, if not 10,000 extra returns, doing what they find fun. The Pareto frontier will push out. To be fair, so far, we seeded the embryos of some proto-DAOs, sold a bunch of digital art, and pulled a tiny fraction of the world's financial resources into Web3. So I get it if drawing a line from that to this big, fun vision sounds overly utopian or optimistic. But imagine explaining even the past decade to our Stone Age ancestors, or an 18th century American, or even someone alive when I was born in 1987. The long arc of history is bent towards more money and more fun. It's inevitable. The challenge will be making sure that as many people have the chance to participate as possible, and that we put even more of our resources towards the really hard problems. This is a great time to be alive, and if you're reading this, you're one of the early ones. If you find it fun to get involved in things before they're fully formed and to help build the future, as always, my advice is to get involved. You can find a list of DAOs that I link to in the piece at notboring.co, where you can just go to daolist.fyi. And if you see something that looks, that looks fun, jump in. It'll be an experience, and maybe you'll even make some money. If you don't see anything that lines up with your interests, it's never been easier to pull together some friends and spin something up. And if you're building already, Think about how your product can push out the Pareto frontier for your users or members. If nothing else, take a second to think about whether you could be making more money having fun or having more fun making money. You might be playing at a Pareto in a function point today. What would it take to jump out to your frontier? This is going to be fun. Thanks for listening. Have a fantastic week, and I will see you on Thursday. I